Late in the afternoon of October 7, 2017, a 15-foot sea monster was discovered prancing across the well-worn hardwood floors of the old high school gymnasium near downtown Milan, Minnesota. Given that Milan, population 359, is thousands of miles away from any body of water that could be considered a sea, this might seem strange, but to the residents packed into the gym's bleachers, the appearance of the monster and the odd assortment of musicians, soothsayers, and old-timey farmers dancing in her wake was not surprising in the least. At least since artist Ashley Hansen and Andrew Gaylord, also known as Playspace Productions, had arrived some seven months earlier to work in the small prairie town. But what was this anyways? A dance? A celebration? Some kind of town musical? Yes, yes, and most definitely yes. But these are only the most obvious manifestations of what was, in fact, an audacious, arts-based, change-producing community development initiative sponsored by the Southwest Minnesota Housing Partnership through a new program called Partnership Art. Now, the idea for Partnership Art emerged in the spring of 2015 when the Housing Partnership caught wind of Art Place America's Community Development Initiative Program, which was aimed specifically at organizations in the community development field. The Arts Place goal was to, quote, investigate and support place-based community development organizations to sustainably incorporate arts and culture into their core work. An important part of this experiment was to document what was happening and how come. That job was undertaken by PolicyLink, a well-regarded national research and action organization headquartered in Oakland, California. The researcher they sent to the flat and fertile fields of soybeans, corn, and wheat in southwest Minnesota was Lori Chang. Lori is a researcher, writer, planner, and seeker whose work has addressed questions like, what does it take for a black community in America to thrive? How can a community find and empower its truth? And how can community developers integrate arts-based tools and strategies as an enduring core of their practice? I met Lori when I was invited to work at the Housing Partnership as an advisor. For me, being a part of that project was a privilege. So was meeting Lori and the opportunity we had to reflect on the CDI's impact on what was being learned from this audacious cross-sector creative experiment. Given the time that's passed since the close of the initiative, I thought it would be interesting to check in with Lori to revisit her take on the CDI project and find out what's next for her. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, claiming my place. Lori Chang. Welcome to the show. Where are you hailing from today? I am the land of the Ohlone people, the coastal people in San Francisco, Chinatown to be exact. And I am speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Lashan Ohlone in the land of the Hushin people, which means you're right across the bay from me. I am, which is so cool. Yes. So I know the last two years has been a time of strange change. So how do you describe what you do in the world these days? 
I think I am a pimp for curiosity and not just any type of curiosity, the type of curiosity that I think children have. So that open type of curiosity. So that curiosity I turn on myself, which is the last year or so of my journey. Also, I try to interject, integrate, hold space for, bring up curiosity whenever I can in in all spaces. And until it gets to a place of love and understanding, that's what I strive anyways. There's one thing I want to add, because my best friend drew me a tarot card yesterday of who I am. It's the star goddess. I'm not familiar with that card. What's it saying? It says, she is the guiding light of hope and serendipity, bringing clarity and spiritual vision. The star of life radiates from her heart, illuminating her core starry essence. The star at her third eye and throat brings celestial vision, encourages unique expression. Her celestial compassion is here to awaken your heart to ascend into your highest stellar path on Earth. So when I first met you, you were, in essence, a professional curiosity pimp. That was your job. And in the regular world, they call them researchers. And, and you were asking questions and, and collecting information and drawing conclusions. How did you come to this path of what I would call radical, assertive inquiry and curiosity? Where'd that come from? I would say that my story always starts with my ancestors and my mom, particularly. I would say that for most of my life, I've felt a weight on me that feels like my inner voice couldn't be heard and it felt suppressed that nobody was really interested even though that wasn't always true of course but it just felt like that wasn't people weren't interested in what my inner life was and what I had to say so you know that comes from being a Chinese American daughter of immigrants all the things that come through the United States and its history of patriarchy racism and then also the part that I'm coming to now is all of the oppression that comes through China through my parents as well. So I think all of my work stems from trying to break free for me to be able to say my truth and be my truth and for others to be able to do the same and led me to first the environment, not having a a voice. And then that led me to understanding that people aren't bad. It's the systems that are messed Mm -hmm. up. So that's what led me to my career in urban planning. And, but when I got to urban planning in adopting a systems-like way of thinking and how to like change systems, I found that one, the history of injustices in this country that has come through urban planning and through policy and the solutions that were present at the time when I was in school were so technical, so removed from the heart of people, in my opinion. And so when you came out of school, what was there that, that didn't feed you in, the, in academia? It got, to the, it got to the gushy stuff. Like it got to, I was the one in planning school writing love letters to like future people who would use certain sites. Like that was, my friends called, my friends called me like the whimsical person. As planners, we build place and we try to have intention with making a place that serves people, but 
if you're not operating in that place of heart and story and people's actual lives, then it's really hard to get to. And arts have all have always held that for me and games and play. So what, what when you were growing up, was there an important and powerful cultural presence? I didn't realize how important my personal story was to my work until much later. And because I identify with my mom a lot, she's the youngest of the youngest and married somebody she just met for a day. And she came to this country. She left her entire family behind and landed in a place where she didn't know the culture, the rules, the language, even the people, like including her husband. And fortunately, she landed in Chinatown, this place where mm. you have everything you need, groceries, school, doctor, library, hospital is here in Chinatown in the Chinese language using the culture and, the, and tr traditions. So she landed in the place where she could navigate and find both the formal and informal people that could help her help us have upward mobility. So without that cultural translation of being in a foreign country, I don't know if it would have been possible for me to be where I am. Wow. It's so interesting. It reminds me, there's so much of the dominant American story that's all about leaving one place and going to another, moving on to new territory, moving people out of the way in the process of finding the promised land. And it's so interesting that that immigrant story of coming to the safe place where there is an intact relationship and connection to a culture that, that keeps you safe and supports you, which is the exact opposite of getting out of town, right? I think there's a part of everybody that has that yearning for that safe place where you don't have to worry about whether people are questioning whether you belong there or not. That's a gift, especially for someone new to this crazy country. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a huge gift to my parents and probably a huge thing for me in terms of still navigating myself as an American as well. That's That does not solve those issues. Oh, it doesn't. And so here's a question. You have one foot in one world and another foot in another world, particularly as a young person where you're trying to form your identity. Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? Did How did culture manifest in all of that? How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> I think the amount of internalized racism I have is something that I didn't really understand. Like, I would walk out my door and try to show that I'm an American in this place that people consider foreign. Like this proof that I still, like, yeah, I may look Chinese and there's a history in this country of seeing Chinese people as forever foreigners, but look, I belong. Let me try to prove myself by dressing a certain way or speaking a certain way. You know, the Chinese stereotype is that we stay in the background and we don't say anything. So every time I wasn't saying anything, I felt like I was reinforcing the stereotype. And lately, the reckoning that's happening with anti-Asian stuff, it's all just coming to a head and helping me understand the invisibility of Chinese people in this country and Asians as foreigners and this thing that has influenced my life 
almost invisibly has really been coming to a head lately. And at the same time, the last year of my life has been really dedicated in claiming my place as the next in line of being Chinese American and born in this country. So how do I honor everything that has been given to me while taking on all the crap that comes with being Chinese American and answering that call. Part two, the big oasis. I'm going to get into some history here. So you were at Policy Link and you ended up in a cultural research project was pretty significant. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about how that manifested? Yeah. Yeah. Policy Link was probably the main organization that I knew uh, as a student aspiring to make a difference in the social justice world. So basically, I was in search of planning for our communities that had art and heart at the center. And I've met this person, mentor, Jeremy Liu, and he introduced me to this whole world of what I didn't know I was looking for. And I happened to step into a field that had just been formally around for a couple of years, known as creative placemaking or placekeeping, place knowing. There are many words for it, aka arts and cultural based community development. Just integrating arts and cultural strategies into how we plan communities. And to me, it's really different from other approaches to social justice or community development because I believe, to me, it always puts true north at the front. Like, versus like, how many houses do we need to build? All important things, but I think those are milestones versus true north. So you want to be more specific about true north for you? I think True North is a place where people can be their truth selves, be able to heal the hard things and take their gifts and transform it into creation, into their purpose, into the world. Their spirit is in the world. Okay. The Policy Link Project, you had the privilege of being in on something that are actually beyond the scope of what I think the original funders thought they were doing. And I'm just wondering if you could describe that and what are some of the things that you felt you learned about human beings and creativity and community? Ah, well, first off, just to give you a a view of the work that I did in my time at PolicyLink is it was about bringing these two fields, community development and arts and culture together. So I worked helping community development organizations integrate arts and culture. And then on the other side, trying to help arts organizations step more into equitable development, equitable policies. So that's under the Mm -hmm. umbrella of Art Place America Community Development Investment Program. So we worked from both sides, as well as the in-between. We were the first to help design and implement a technical assistance program for creative placemaking for the National Endowments for the Arts. So we've also worked as well with LISC. So LISC, which refers to the Local Initiative Support Corporation, which works for affordable housing, and the National Endowment for the Arts, and Art Place America, along with PolicyLink. That's quite a team. So the Community Development Investment Program, it's one of the largest arts and culture experiment in the country in which there was 
$18 million, so $3 million each, to six community development organizations. So these are organizations that do park development, economic development, anti-gentrification, youth development, all of that, and not a super deep background in arts and culture. So they were given $3 million a piece and told to integrate arts and culture to try to achieve their bigger goals over the course of three years and let's see what happens. And it's very different from most projects. You don't have that type of freedom and exploration. And I worked most intimately with two of them. I was the designated researcher to be able to watch the Zuni Youth Enrichment Program that works in youth development in Zuni and Southwest Minnesota Housing Partnership, which is Mm -hmm. how I met you, Bill, in rural Minnesota. Yep. Very interesting juxtaposition, those two projects, because everybody involved in these kinds of things end up learning a lot. And I'm wondering, in your journey with this, what are some of your takeaways from this nexus of the cultural do-gooder impulse and the housing development, youth development coming together to try and, and, and make sense and use of culture as a resource for changing communities to the better? What are your takeaways? First of all, every organization began in a different place. Every community began in a different place. There is a different relationship between the organization and the communities that they worked with. So I look at this from a social and cultural fabric perspective. There were communities that had tighter social and cultural fabric and also communities that were closer to the organizations or further from the organizations. And I found that each of those relationships, whether close or far, tight-knit or not, arts and culture was a way to connect, strengthen the fabric, the cultural infrastructure, the social infrastructure. It was a better way of putting organizations in a relationship with communities that was focused on people's lives and their roots and also found a way to connect across groups. And it flipped a lot of the business as usual ways of how community development work. Like instead of a housing workshop, you had an art project in a dilapidated house, listening house in, in Southwest Minnesota, where you had people come in that had Scandinavian and Micronesian or origins units, there's two different cultures and people coming in to talk about what makes a home. In the 100 years since this house was built, it's meant many things to many people. All who lived here brought with them their own complex histories, values, and ideas about how to make this house a home. And all left this place somehow changed. We now invite you to do the same. What does home mean to you? Whatever it is, we hope you'll consider sharing it with us. And just as important, we hope you'll take some time to consider the thoughts and values voiced by those who came here before you. Together, we'll discover new ways to create home for each other, right here in Milan. So that was the invitation to the listening house, and that's surely not business as usual in a place like Milan. Is it like that's not that's really different from here. Come learn about how to do some house fixing up. You're having a different level of conversation. So if I could just interject here by saying that 
This project, the Community Development Initiative, was very unique in the world of arts-based community development. There are very few perfect storm investments in this work in terms of the resources and the people and the willingness to learn and the external conditions for obvious reasons. I mean, we live in a culture where anybody that's trying to combine culture with what people think of as hardcore community development work, you know, housing development, youth development, healthcare, the science side of community building is going to be at the short end of the stick in terms of resources and people's patience and willingness to learn. Yeah. And so this one, as you said, expanded the opportunity window. And I mean, three years, three million, that's a pretty big oasis. So were you able to really say, here's what it takes for these kinds of initiatives to have a life beyond the funding? And were there any projects among the six that you felt, okay, the seed that we planted with the community has a good chance of being nurtured and surviving and thriving? And if so, why? Okay, I love the work that happened in Zuni. So this was with the Zuni Youth Empowerment Project, which was an outside non-tribal organization with a really long-standing relationship uh, with Zuni that was run by doctors and devoted to youth health and youth development, right? Ah, uh, yes. And I got to dive in in a way that I think was so intimate. I talked to them every week and I asked them every week, what's different about using this technique that wouldn't have been the same? And you take this group of people who have a lot of the same stories of other Native groups of like colonization, disempowerment, culture genocide and all of this. But at the same time, what sets Zuni apart is they've been able to retain their culture. Like 90% of Zuni people still speak the language, still go by the Zuni calendar. So you had this disempowerment, but at the same time, a holding on of the culture. And so what this project did was take that culture and use it as the base and the foundation for Zuni moving forward. Is So you had this youth development organization, and I remember asking the executive director, Tom Faber, at the time, if you didn't have this arts and culture grant, what would you have done for park development for youth health? He said, oh, it would have been so easy. He would have put a couple of squares in the ground for basketball, maybe a soccer field, just like lines, and he would have called it successful. And don't get me wrong, they are super respectful, super check-in with the tribal council all the time. So that would have been enough. And how projects would develop in Zuni, the ideas would originate from the doctors about what to do and then try to involve Zuni. That's how it was done before. But now, when they built this park, they got behind the artist committee. The artist committee were basically the leaders. And for the first time, you had Zuni culture front and center, you had these people that were really also youth development professionals, these artists who like look out for Zuni youth and Zuni culture at the center of it, talking about Zuni's origin story, talking about where they draw their power. And they involved the students in creating these art projects that went on the walls. It was a process in which Zuni culture was not 
put to the side. Front and center. Front and center foundation. It's not surprising that the report Lori and her colleagues produced for the CDI partners is called Strengthening and Connecting the Social Fabric of Communities. In it, she describes some of the tangible ways the new Zuni Park effort helps strengthen the place of Zuni culture in the community. Here's how this is described in the report. By working in deep partnership with the Committee of Seasoned Artists, Zuni Youth Enrichment Program learned how to plan, design, and program themselves into the social fabric of Zuni. Many of the artists set out to create community ownership over the park, motivating their networks to contribute to the park. For example, they had 700 elementary school students design pottery pieces depicting Zuni's migration story. As trusted religious leaders and artists grounded in the nation's traditions, they curated and created culturally affirming designs and art installations which permeate the park with murals, traditional coyote fencing, and traditional wooden beams known as vegas. Daryl Shack, a member of the Artist Committee, proudly described children gazing up at the murals of Zuni's origin story and sharing what they know with each other. He explained, children now have a place to find mentors and develop a commitment to themselves and their culture. And so what happened is that after they had the experience of working in this way, now things have changed where instead of ZYP coming up with ideas, you actually have the Zuni artists going, oh, we really want to put some of the Zuni oral stories that we have and to turn it into theater. Can you figure out how to make it happen? I know there's a space. Can we find funding? So they're the ones coming with the ideas based in Zuni culture and now ZYP supporting them. So it's like flipping that way of working. What I hear you saying is that through CDI, the relationship between Zuni and the doctors at ZYEP moved really quickly from a well-intentioned and earnest doctor center mode to Zuni-centered, and the catalyst was the powerful and indelible force that had been there all along, namely Zuni culture. In both directions, I remember having a conversation with somebody on staff who was white at ZYEP and saying, oh yeah, now it makes me want to look into my culture and my history and my background. And and then there's also a restart within Zuni people. I feel like there's a button that's been pushed of like restarting like culture as front and center for Zuni people themselves too, because they see it, right? They've made it happen. They have it on the walls in this art center. They've experienced what it's like to put it at the center. Now they expect it and now it, it powers them. Part three, talking about a culture shift. So are there any stories within the Zuni initiative that really personifies what inspired? The story I want to tell is around talking to them when the pandemic hit. And I talk about this work as getting to the true north of community resilience. And there's nothing more that I could point to than the story of Zuni ZYP knowing how to respond to the pandemic. When we talk to them, they're just like, oh yeah, the Zuni Artist Committee is on it. They're like creating this youth art competition and how to keep people safe and creating boxes of things that the kids can take home. Like they were on it, ZYP. They've already built that muscle in how to respond to something that's 
disasters and suffering mm-hmm. that happens because that's life. So I'm was super just impressed and going, like, see, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a muscle, isn't it? The resilience and creativity and being able to adapt to circumstances and seeing that old cliche crisis is opportunity for sure. One of the things that I always ask people involved in research and evaluation is, what did you find out that worked? And the flip side, what practices did not advance this kind of work? The big, I think the biggest, most difficult part to me, because I guess part of the lens in which I see the world, as well as also how I watched things play out, is the ability to transform something from the inside out. And I'm talking about the organizations themselves. There's a reason why when we wrote the papers, which is the culmination of this work, there's a huge bucket on organizational development, organizational change to allow this work to happen. Here's another short excerpt from Lori's report that speaks to this challenge. The organizations needed at least two changes from their normal order of business to become effective in this process of enhancing social fabric through arts and culture. First, they needed to genuinely and with open minds learn through their collaborations with artists rather than think of the artists as contractors or instruments for a predetermined task. Second, they needed space, permission, and humility to rethink their relationship to residents. That modesty, openness to change, and willingness to take risks were necessary to successfully deploy innovative arts and cultural strategies. The groups were all experienced and well-established in their respective technical or specialized domains, making this venture into uncharted territory even more unusual. They ventured into areas where their expertise and standing could not guarantee success and put processes into motion that would empower residents, but not necessarily their own organizations. They chose to be vulnerable and to listen, and through those actions, did more to strengthen the social fabric and enhance residents' power and efficacy than if they had been directive. You can bring together a couple of staff, one or two staff completely dedicated to this work and learning and seeing and feeling completely that it works and actually gets to the heart of communities. But if you don't have the organization itself the staff experiencing it themselves. And it's really hard to change the way that they can take up this work. You, I think you had a front row seat of that. I think the Southwest Minnesota Housing Partnership had probably to me, the one of the best tries to try to do that. And I feel like mm-hmm. it's one of the better stories around that. Yeah. And Most of the community development professionals in these organizations have spent their lives trying to be good in a very complex and demanding field. And then all of a sudden, an artist from the community shows up and says, hey, actually, here's a whole other way of thinking about establishing a relationship with the community. It's a big ask, particularly when the role you're going to play is in question, which more often than not is a role of authority and having not only to take one step back, but many steps back, and then to go into learning mode. That's why the three years of CDI was so important. We're talking about culture shift, culture shift for organizations away from the business as usual. We live in this 
system of white supremacy, of perfectionism, of yeah. capitalism. And that is the stuff that runs through organizations. So trying to shift those organizations themselves that have been around for a certain amount of time that exist under these systems, that's really difficult work. And it takes a lot of intention. And if I were to figure out the next step, if there were another experiment, that's what I would put my money behind. You know, I think one of the most important things we were able to do at the Southwest Minnesota Housing Partnership was convince them to integrate an artist inside the workings of the organization. The, the staff understood the value of the artists working in the communities they served, but getting a powerful change agent like Ashley Hansen embedded in that organization made all the difference. Monday through Friday, your alarm goes off, you get out of bed, get yourself ready, and headed to work. You walk down the corridor to your office, passing the smiling faces of your colleagues. Some you think you know quite well, others barely at all. And you wonder if they really know you, because the person that we are at work is slightly different than the person we are when we're off the clock. That is what we'll be exploring in this podcast series. Who are the staff of the Southwest Minnesota Housing Partnership when they are not at work? I'm your host, Ashley Hansen, and today we are off the clock with Chelsea Elgers. For sure, you know, they ended up singing and dancing down the aisles <laughs> and doing radio shows together. But in the end, the most important thing was how these community planners and facilitators and affordable housing developers began to see themselves as real creative change agents. It was a wonderful thing to be able to do, to watch. It's not like every artist on earth has the ability to go inside a hierarchical, you know, organization and start to mess with it in a respectful way so that people come out on the other side going, that was cool. I yeah. like this. I learned so much from Ashley Hansen talking to her sitting on the floor <laughs> because that's just how we do. Um, and the way that she talked about that the staff were essentially her community that she was working with, applying her creative process to the staff itself about discovery and finding out who they are and like introducing play. I remember understanding something pretty deeply around the wound that everybody carries that somewhere along the way someone said don't draw that or don't paint that that's not good enough or that's not pretty and we get shut down and she talked about the process of restarting and healing that so I just I thought that was super powerful and it helped me see oh that's what you're doing you're just like healing through discovery and play one of the most important things in work with communities is obviously listening, but you can't listen to other people if you don't listen to yourself. And so many people stop listening to themselves when they're a kid and somebody says, that's not very good. And that's the beginning of doubting whether what you think is fun and good is, is actually as good as it's supposed to be, right? And you see that in organizational life where yes. people are going, okay, where are the guardrails? Where can I go? Where can't I go? And, and I, it's just such a thrill to see so many people in that staff who had really good ideas, who were quiet and then not quiet. Mm. <laughs> and that was really cool. And Ashley was so good 
at just her sparkly eye going, yeah, come on, tell me. Yes. <laughs> what do you think? Just go for it. Yeah. It's a special thing. Part four, the road to Shambhala. So obviously you have spent this last time doing your own exploration. So where are you off to? What do you see as next steps? So when the pandemic hit, I, I was in a place where I've been able to taste liberation through this work. I tasted it. I felt it because I know now that liberation is in moments. And mm. there was a dissonance between feeling that and seeing all ways in which that was brought into fruition and all the things that I wasn't dealing with. So that gap became too much <laughs> and I had to reconcile. So I figured out that I can't talk about this work out there without knowing what it means for me, which is what does liberation look like for me? To have the audacity to ask that is was big for me. And I took a lot of those lessons that I learned from the field, like when you were talking about the guardrail, it actually made me think of one thing that I took in from this work into my own life is moving away from black and white thinking of there's only one right way and the other way is not right. There, you only have two options. This is a binary world. There's guardrails for safety, but it's not a line of do not cross. But it's this too can exist. So I think creative place picking helps me. That's an uncaging process. I also took play a lot more seriously, really seriously. And I ask myself, when do I feel most free? It's when I'm dancing. And I took dancing really seriously. And I combined it with things that I love, which is being outside. So now I'm like the silly person who like is dancing crazily outside. But taking play seriously <laughs> allowed me to come into my intuition. And now I can hear my inner voice more clearly and also honor it. So there's just, there's so much I learned that now I've applied to my life and I'm no longer just seeing it and being around it, but I, I have incorporated it into my life. This is intriguing, Lori, you know, the work you did at PolicyLink with the ArtPlace CDI project was really asking similar questions and supporting communities that were challenging the same dichotomous worldview. Uh, right there at the crossroads of history and culture, tradition and modernity, wisdom and knowledge, modern medicine and ancient healing practice, you could say this is one of the great struggles of the world today. Yeah. The moment we appear to be in. So where does all this lead? Where are you casting your net? Well, I did want to talk about this moment specifically in the world and where I am trying to match it, trying to figure it out. So there are three things that inform how I'm looking at this moment. And because I've been operating in a place of thinking about the universe 
and humanity as one. So there's a prophecy that was made 1,200 years ago by some Tibetan monks. It's called the Shambhala Prophecy, and it speaks of a moment in which the world comes to a place where Mother Earth is hurting really badly, and technology is at a height that is very dangerous. And what will happen is that there will be Shambhala warriors that emerge, and they're not going to have any insignia, any branding. You can't recognize them from what they look like. And they're going to have two things that can help fight and save this world, and that's compassion and insight. And so that prophecy, I feel like, is now. And this is also informed by a BBC article that talks about this moment as the hinge moment of Mother Earth and technology reaching a height. And we're in a moment that isn't just going to affect the next hundreds of years, but the next thousands or millions of years. And the third thing that informs all of this is that there's an astrological alignment that happened during the pandemic called the Great Conjunction that hasn't happened since before the Renaissance. So the last time historically mechs have been these moments of deep reflection and a questioning of everything of what's possible and what's normal and no more normal. So that, you know, led to the Renaissance. And so I've, I've been saying since December 2020 that a Renaissance is coming and I believe that it's here. So we have this moment that we're being called to of huge reckoning and there's so much that we need to heal at the same time. I'm hearing it being called the great realignment. So we have this moment learning from my liberation journey in the last year. We already have everything that we need. Working in this field has proven to me that there's already people who already have the tools. We have this moment where we need to rise in our wholeness, in our shared humanity. So I'm trying to figure out for myself now, how do I figure this out of, how, of learning everything I've learned about collective liberation, personal liberation, back into collective liberation? How do I rise to this moment? Yeah, a Shambhala warrior. And it, to me, it fits perfectly. I think one of the most important things about human evolution is stark choices. I think humans are terrible at nuance and at subtlety and particularly in group learning that the stakes have to be clear and not just for the people who are just wondering, oh my God, what do we do? But the, actually the, the warrior folks, the, the clearer North becomes, the harder you can push in that direction and know that you don't have all the answers, but if you're pushing in the right direction and others there with you, you know, the, the potential is you're making a difference. Another thing humans are really good at is talking a good game. Uh, accepting cheers from the fans in the stands and leaving the playing field never to be seen again. But over the past few years, you have been privileged to have seen and experienced a real game being played with beginnings, middles, and ends, and a next season and a next with both good intentions and good outcomes for the people playing. And I must say, playing in some very unorthodox ways. I think this is an amazing gift because you've seen it happen in the real world. You know, so much optimism, understandably, is wishful thinking. 
Your optimism has a real foundation. You're not just blowing smoke. Uh, the gift of my work, I think, has a similar tint. I've seen it firsthand. Done right? I think we both know. This stuff works. This stuff really works. Does. I think the other piece is it took me a while to recognize that as liberatory work because when you're in it, I think it's hard to see that, but it is. And because I'm a very big optimist, I've been thinking about humanity as one person across time and space. We are a child of Mother Earth. Like, how are we doing? We're like a teenager. We're a teenager. We're... Unpredictable. You know, unpredictable. We've used the greatest weapon we have against each other that animals don't have, which is story. And we've used it for both rising and for separating. Now we're trying to grow up. <laughs> like, yeah, we're in a race, you know. I mean, it's like the cosmos is saying, hey, Homo sapiens. You have about 190,000 years of history. You've learned some lessons over and over and over. Some wisdom has accrued. Some of you know what needs to be done now. (laughs) Some of you would rather not do the hard work, but it's time. Now or never. And actually, now or never is probably a good place to close this conversation because I know you have one more thing you want to add to the story you've shared, which is something you've written about your journey. So, Lori, please take us out with a poem. Looking for Lori. Hi, you've reached Lori Chang. I'm not here right now. I'm out looking for my mom, her love, myself, my love. I'm sorry, not sorry. I'm not in right now, or I'm too in right now, inside myself, trying to find little Lori to love her. Excuse me for it taking a while. It's something that was never taught to me because it was never taught to her, or her, or her. I'm not sure you know how long, how long, how long. We've been waiting. So give us a little space to be still, to feel, to exhale, to speak, to sing, to soar. And oh, if my mom asks, where have you been? Like, why aren't you where I told you to be? Tell her. I wish I could tell you, Mom. That little six-year-old who enrolled yourself in school because you followed your friend one day. Go in, hum. Hum, that, the Okay, la. I'm somewhere where it's okay now. It's okay now to cry when it hurts. It's okay now to hurt. It's okay now to wanna be held. It's okay now to be held. It's okay now not to earn love. It's okay now just to be loved. It's okay now, now. You can be here now. Where you can close your eyes, rest your mind, and let the music flow through you, move you. 
Where you know day because you know night. Where you know spring because you know winter. Where you know there are no more parts of yourself that you need to hide because you are whole. I wish I could tell you, Mom. I wish you would believe me. I'm where love is a birthright. So, anyways, just give me a second. I'll get right back to you as soon as I want to. Holla. Well, thanks, Lori, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. As you know, Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our incredible soundscape and theme come from the talented musical pen of Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects are from freesound.org. And our inspiration, as always, comes from the inimitable presence of Uk235. Until next time, stay well, do good and spread the good word. <laughs>